0: Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till subway the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And today, I am joined by five-time Grammy Award winner and Canadian Music Hall of Fame icon, former Blood, Sweat, and Tears singer, Mr. David Clayton Thomas. David, how you doing, man? Good morning, Brent. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So, uh, are, you, uh, are you broadcasting from home like the rest of us? I am. This is a work-from-home day today <laughs> for me. <laughs> how you holding up down there in Toronto? Well, it's you know, I had to go out and get some groceries
1: yesterday, and there's nobody out there. And it's, uh, it's it's very strange. I'm right in downtown Toronto, right on the waterfront, and for once, there's no traffic down here.
0: <laughs> that's probably I guess it's
1: a, a blessing of sorts.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's it. In these times, we have to look at the silver linings, right? If we can, that's for sure. If we can, that's right. So, David, uh, congratulations on the new record. We're going to get into that, but I wanted to talk to you um, about Blood, Sweat, and Tears Days, if we could. I'm a fan of yours. I uh, was just listening to Spinning Wheel the other day. It's actually on my uh, Saturday morning playlist. It gets some airtime here at the house quite a lot.
1: I imagine that's still getting airplay 50 years later. Isn't
0: it? I know, it's incredible. But, you know, that was that was a magical time for music, wasn't it?
1: It was, and it was. And in some ways, to say something, album goes back to those days when records actually carried a message. You know, it was the music that drove Woodstock. It stopped the war. It had political significance. It had social commentary to it. It all kind of got lost. I think when the music industry moved out to LA and the music became secondary to the video.
2: Yeah.
1: And it became basically a, a music track for a dance video. Yeah. But I'm going back to the late 60s and early 70s where all music had a point to it. It, it. it was changing. It was the voice of a generation and it was changing the world. And I think it could again. It, it certainly does need to be
0: changed. Oh, that's for sure. Yeah, there's no question. I uh, I wanted to bring up something uh, that I thought was pretty cool. I was reading something that was interesting about you the other day and it was a story about how Clive Davis saw you play for the first time in Greenwich Village in New York City. Uh- and uh, he said that he was you know, kind of intimidated by you just by your presence but he was uh, he was electrified by your performance and, and I always thought that Oh thank
1: that goodness because was... that's <laughs> there wouldn't have been a blood, sweat, and tears if he wasn't That's right uh, He came into the Café of Bilbo to see us one night and uh, we already had a recording contract uh, left over from the first album but there was very little left of the band there was only four guys left Yeah. and Bobby Columbia the drummer and they rebuilt the new band around me, and Clive Davis came in to hear us at the Cafe Agogo. Remember, the Cafe Agogo seated about 50 people; it wasn't a big club. Mm-hmm. And uh, the band was on fire. Well, we were on fire from the first rehearsal. We knew what we had right from the very first rehearsal. We knew we had one hell of a band. And and why not? It was the A team of New York. It was Randy Brecker, and you know some of the. Lou uh, Soloff, Freddie Lipsius, Jim Field, and Bobby Columbia, these were the guys. These are
0: the the, the A team in New York. Yeah. So when these guys put together a band, people people sat up and took took notice. Well, it was it, it was fantastic, and as I say, I, I I still listen to the old stuff. So, but you know, you've got a new record out now. So let's talk about that a little bit. It just came out March twentieth. It's called "Say Something," and uh, on this record, you tackle a number of contemporary social issues
1: write songs because I'm going into the studio to make an album. That's that's not the way I work. Um, I'm kind of jotting down little ideas every day. Mm-hmm. And I had assembled, oh, maybe 25 or 30 bits of lyric, choruses, sometimes full songs. And I wanted to collaborate with my four favorite musicians, Lupa Monty, who's an ex-member of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, been with me for 30 years. Mm-hmm. George Kohler. Uh, these guys are my close friends. And I called the guys over, and I would just sit there and read them the lyrics. And there's a certain cadence to the reading of lyrics, you know, of poetry, there's the rhythm to it.
2: Yeah.
1: A couple of acoustic guitars. And when one of them struck a chord with one of the guys, "Hmm, let's go, let's go with that one. Let's let's see what we can do to develop that. Mm -hmm. And as we got into selecting the stuff, I realized that more and more, the songs were all about uh, things that were going on in the world. I mean, climate change, immigration, all of the crazy stuff we see every day on television. Mm -hmm. And it's getting crazier by the minute, as you all know. (laughs) And so... One day, George Kohler said, uh, boy, these songs really say something. I said, hey, there's our title. There's it. That's it. And from that moment, the album, the project became called Say Something. And we focused in on that direction. And the songs came together and were developed that every song had to attack an issue and say something. I, l-
0: I love that. You know, it's, it's nice to know that people are still writing songs organically in that way.
1: Well, that's how we did it in the 60s and 70s, wasn't it? You know, I was very influenced by Bob Dylan, of course, mm-hmm. and Dylan's songs were so political. I hate to see you use the word political. They were social. Yeah. And, uh, very influenced by him. And even my earliest records, I had a, a kind of a, social commentary edge to them. Yeah. Uh, but that can kind of get lost. I, I kind of, Strayed away from that, in I guess with you. Well, blood, sweat, and tears. I hadn't recorded in thirty years. So (laughs) (laughs) for thirty years, I was a road performer. And as long as I was with blood, sweat, and tears, I wouldn't record again. They had no interest in recording. That was a million dollar a year, multi-million dollar a year touring band. Yeah. That uh, was just going out playing spinning wheel, and you made me so very happy every night. And that's what they did. And since the original guys were all gone, mm-hmm. that fire, that creative fire that, that, that was responsible for the band getting together in the first place, you don't put together a nine-piece band to play a 50-seat club in Greenwich Village with the idea they're gonna make any money. Yeah, yeah. It was, a, it was a creative experiment. And the guys were all in it uh, for the music. Th- to break th- down some barriers, to break down walls and, and create something new. That was gone. The, the, the group had turned into basically hired guns who just went out there and played the hits.
0: It was a novelty act, basically.
1: Yeah, it was Yeah, it was a tribute act. You know, it was a tribute band. Yeah. The only one left was me.
0: Yeah.
1: Around about uh, 2020, or around about uh, 04, 05, I said, I've had enough of this. And I had a lot of songs... Up that I wanted to record, and I'd never get to record them with blood, sweat, and tears. They had no interest in recording new music. Hmm. Not the band, not the management, nothing. So I split. I moved back to Canada, and I made three albums in three years. That's (laughs) that's how much material I had built up. Wow. And I've managed to record since then an album every year, year and a half. I managed to do a new album. But the Say Something album was very special. And first of all, it was a team of my closest friends who made the album, guys that I work with all the time, who I, who I hang out with, even if I'm not working with them, you know? hmm And uh, they're, my, they're my closest friends. And we didn't have a record deal at, the po- at that point. And so we went back to that same ethic that started Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Yeah. Just a bunch of guys wanted to knock down the walls a little bit and do something different. And that's what it was all about. That's so great. The record deal actually came later. Uh, we actually performed a couple of the songs live in concert, and and Jeff Kulowick from True North Records came up to me after the show. He said, that's amazing. I want to sign you guys. You know, Really?
0: What, it's like the old days again. Yeah. That's great. I love that.
1: Yeah. Well, those days are pretty much gone, you know. Record companies then used to all have... Uh, A&R man. Yes, that's right. The A&R man was the guy who would go out and hang out in the clubs looking for something different.
0: Yeah. Today, something different is the kiss of death, my
1: friend. (laughs) Because everything's being run by by marketing guys. That's right. And they're looking to reproduce whatever it is was the hit yesterday. They're not looking for new stuff and creative stuff.
2: Every yeah, uh... <laughs>
1: once in a while something breaks through I love Billie Eilish for instance this year
2: Oh yeah
0: yeah. She's
1: been able to do And this is the future of recording I think She made the record in her living room With her brother
0: Oh I didn't know that
1: Yeah that record was all done in a computer Completely digitally recorded And they did it at home And there's only two guys, two people on it The brother did all the programming And she did the singing and the song that They co-wrote everything
0: and What does it sound like, David? Is it? Or- I kind
1: of like that spirit. Yeah, I like Billy Eilish a lot.
0: And, the, and how's the sound of the record? And the reason why I ask is just because you know, well, like, yeah,
1: no, I understand where you're coming from, and it is lacking something. Mm-hmm. And that's just from my own perspective. I don't record that way.
2: Yeah,
1: I admire what they managed to do, but. I'm old school. I, I want to go in the studio, set my musicians up. One of the first things I make sure that the engineer setup guy does, I want everybody to have eye contact. Yeah. Everybody's got to be able to see each other. Because music to me is a conversation between musicians. And the, the most magical things happen during the course of, a, of a, a session when everything is just not written down. When you do something digitally, uh, you know, you might put the drums in on Wednesday, and you, you know, might like put the bass bass parts in a couple of weeks later, and you know, nothing is done spontaneously. Yeah. And I, I think the music suffers from that. You cannot record jazz that way. It, it just you cannot record digital jazz. You know. No. Um, you can't overdub the bass player and then put the saxophone player in because. It's a musical conversation that takes place between two, three, four musicians. Yeah. And, and that spark, that that fire, that ideas that are flowing between those musicians are what makes jazz.
0: That's right. A lot of it's so I've
1: stuck to that. You know, I learned a lesson from those Clyde Davis days. That first record that became the number one album in the world, yep. we would play those songs at the Cafe Go-Go at night. And then the next day, we'd go up to 52nd Street to the CBS studios and record them. Every song on that album had been played live several times in front of live audiences before we recorded it. And so we had done it as a band. We played it on stage for people like a real band before we went in the studio to record it. And that's a principle that I've tried to keep to all these years.
0: Yeah. And I, I love that. I think that there's a certain authenticity, you know, associated with that. It's live off the floor. It's, it's organic. And it's just, a, it's natural.
1: Yeah. And I try to keep my mind open. As I say, the Billy Eilish record was done in a completely different way. Yeah. Completely done in a hard drive. But it was done artistically and done well. Uh, Dr. Dre, for instance, mm-hmm. does incredible production. Yeah without having that kind of uh, immediacy of the musician being there. But he, he managed to make great records. But they're not the musician's records. They're Dr. Dre's records.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I, I don't want to sound closed-minded. I mean, if, if that spirit of authenticity is there, and I know it is there with Billie Eilish, then, you know, knock yourself out. I, I fully support that, too.
1: I just love the way she sings.
0: Yeah. It's different. She oh.
1: reminds me a little bit of the first time I heard Alanis Morrison. I said, hmm, that's different.
2: Oh, you know? 95, yeah. never
1: heard anybody like that before. Yeah. And she sings in tune, <laughs> and the songs are good. <laughs> so, you know, I try not to get so old that I'm not listening to young young artists no.
0: coming out. No, we we can't do that, right? We cannot do that. It's very important to keep an open mind. I completely agree. <laughs>
1: Well, and I have a lot of connection with the young musicians coming up and today, and I feel my heart breaks for them sometimes. Their, their uh, recording industry has been just decimated by Spotify and streaming services like that yeah. who are paying no money to the artists at all. And so that's basically bankrupted the recording industry. Now with this uh, COVID-19 crisis we're going through, all of the venues are closed. Mm-hmm. So, these young kids, these are, these are talented kids with master's degrees from Humber. Oh, they're yeah. out of work. Yeah. They're out there on the sidewalk with a basket, basically, trying to, trying to pay the rent.
0: Yeah, you know, Dave, on this show, um, I see a lot of artists, young artists, coming through, and they are fantastic. They play right in front of me with no effects and no, you know, it's stripped-down stuff, and they are talented musicians, and my heart breaks for them right now because, you know, that they, they got the rug pulled out from under them, in essence.
1: It was happening before the uh, before the uh, coronavirus hit. Yeah. Uh, here in Toronto, most of the live venues have closed. mm mm-hmm. Mostly because of rents going up, and the music clubs couldn't afford the rents anymore. Yeah. So they were closed up, and condos went in, you know? Yeah. We have, we've got like four live music venues in town <laughs> yeah. that are worth anything.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: That's a disgrace.
0: The Hughes Room just closed down now, too. You probably knew that.
1: They got more live music rooms in Saskatoon than we got in Toronto. <laughs> yeah. It's true.
0: I know. It's sad.
1: Now, it's because of the rising rents here has driven most of the live venues out. Yeah, Hughes Room just closed, didn't it?
0: Yes, it did. Yeah, like weeks ago.
1: That was, oh, no. That was one of my favorite rooms, too. That was a great place to hear music.
0: Oh, amazing. Great sight lines, great vibe.
1: And they had just uh, upgraded their menu in there. The food was really good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went there to see Cadence just a few just a few weeks back.
0: Oh, that was there about a month ago, too. A couple
1: of months ago now, I guess, yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And uh, one of my favorite rooms to watch music in.
0: Yeah.
1: There's that, there's Lula Lounge, the Jazz Bistro is nice. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, but that's about it.
0: I know, that's sad.
1: For a city of this size, it's, it's a disgrace. And we've got all of this young talent. We've got one of the great music schools in the world here at Humber. Mm-hmm. These kids coming out of Humber are scary. They're just really good. Yeah. And they're coming out into a world where there's nowhere for them to work yeah got a master's degree in one hand and <laughs> unemployment in the other yeah
0: no it's unfortunate for sure okay David I've got your songs here and you have got uh, a great list these are these are absolute classics these yeah let's songs. talk about a few
1: of them <laughs> let's, let's really piss people
0: off <laughs> I'd talk to you about this stuff all day this is my wheelhouse Ray Charles oh,
1: Love. I love it. I think if a song doesn't piss somebody off, I haven't I haven't done it right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump in. You've got Ray Charles to start off and Unchain My Heart.
1: Yeah, well, that was one of the Ray Charles is my god. Yeah. Okay. First time I heard Ray Charles, you know, I was criticized early in my career because uh, I was billed sometimes as Canada's White Ray Charles. <laughs> I would try desperately to sound like Ray Charles. Yeah. It wasn't until many years later I develop my you know my own sound but but yeah ray charles definitely he's he's god to me
0: yeah it's fantastic this is uh this is going back and this is like early 60s
1: i was hard pressed to pick a ray charles song yeah i picked that one because it was a little more obscure i mean i could have picked georgia on my mind or you know any of those great country songs he did if you don't know me you know yeah but I figured, unchain my heart. It's a little off the beaten track. Yeah. yeah. Another one I like from then was "Sticks and Stones." That was another great one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next, you've got Marvin Gay and "What's Going On."
1: Well, Marvin revolutionized the industry. Marvin Marvin was about uh, a lot of what the "Say Something" album is about. Hmm. I mean, he came out with "What's Going On" and very Gordy, not just about how to fit, because Motown. Stayed away from politics. Yeah, Motown was all about feel-good music, and they were really leery about politics. And Marvin Gaye and Barry Gordy had a war about recording the album and song "What's Going On" because it is definitely socially aimed right at right at the heart, you know. Yeah, and uh, he he prevailed. And it was one of the first records that I heard, actually, from Motown that actually had a political point of view. Uh,
0: Roberta Flack is next in Killing Me Softly. I love this tune.
1: Well, I love Roberta. I've toured with her. I've worked with her. I know her well. And her command of her instrument and her voice, to me, is just one of the greats of all time. It was going to be Killing Me Softly or... uh, The first time ever. It's going to be one of those two songs. She's just an enormously talented artist, and I love her.
0: Yeah, yeah. This is uh, one of the first songs that I ever remember really hearing, David. I was four years old when this came out, and and the melodies of this song really kind of inspired me to look to music in, in, in my later years.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, and Roberta's singing voice is just a perfect instrument.
0: Yeah, agree. Otis Redding is next in Sitting on the Dock of the Bay.
1: Well, Otis, I could have picked a half a dozen songs. Most of them I sang and played in bars back in the 60s because we played all R&B and Otis. Otis and Wilson Pickett were like staples of our repertoire. Mm -hmm. So I figured uh, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay is, uh, I just recorded an album about eight years ago called Soul Ballads, which we did a tribute to all of those artists. And I I was hard-pressed to not make it all Otis Redding tunes. I mean, he's just such an enormous influence.
0: Oh, it's fantastic, yeah. Uh, Percy Sledge is your last tune, and When a Man Loves a Woman.
1: Uh, Yeah, I recorded that album. I actually recorded that on the uh, Soul Ballad's album, just because his voice just gave me goosebumps. First time I heard it, still does. Oh, yeah. You know, and he only ever had one hit. But boy, oh boy, what a hit it was!
0: Yeah, I think Michael Bolton had a hit with this too later on in the '90s, didn't he? It was it was a big song later on too. This yeah, out... yeah,
1: he might have. He yeah. Might have. Michael Bolton covered a lot of things. He covered "Georgia on My Mind." Yeah. Which I think there should be an act of Congress preventing Michael <laughs> Bolton from singing. I think there should be an act of Congress preventing anybody from ever singing "Georgia on My Mind" except Ray Charles.
0: <laughs> I'd support that. <laughs>
1: Certainly. Songs. Once an artist does them, I think of Midnight Train to Georgia.
0: Yeah,
1: Roberta Fla- uh, 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 Gladys Knight, I'm sorry. Yes, I don't want to hear anybody else do that song ever again. That song has been done.
0: Yeah, there's, uh, there's songs that just shouldn't be touched. I agree with that too. Yeah. Well, David, that is your song list, my friend. Thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, it was fun. Thank you very much. It's not like we've got anywhere to go, is it? That's right. We have We
0: have all day. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. All
1: right, Brent. Pleasure talking
0: with you. Nice talking with you. Thank you very much, sir. I appreciate it. You have a good day. All right, you too. Take good care. All right, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. David Clayton Thomas. Till next time, folks. Take good care.
2: Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury,
0: Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide.